I mean, look at me this morning. I went up, I need some hot water. And I grabbed, my, grabbed the mug I could find here, Ohio State Buckeyes. <laughs> hey, this is good for my soul right here, okay? This is God taking an idol and he's just smashing it. Well, you get to worship it still, Mark. So keep worshiping college football and all the joys it brings. <laughs> all right. Um, let's get into it. We're in the life of Paul. And we're going to go to Galatians 1 this morning. I know we're going all over the place. Um, Paul gives us this biographical material in different places. Galatians 1 is one of those places. Does anybody have a page number in the Blue Bible? Just yell it out. 942. Okay, if you can stand, it's something we like to do. Um, just showing this sense of anticipation that God is going to speak to us. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning at verse 11, Galatians 1. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any person, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation. From Jesus Christ. For you heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the nations, the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. This is God's word for today. You guys can be seated. Let's just uh, start with just a little review. Um, I know this can be just a little tougher today, coming off a big Thanksgiving weekend, um, but let's just step into this. Um, Paul, we've learned, was raised in a devout Jewish family in a world-renowned Hellenistic city called Tarsus, which was the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. But in that space or place, Paul says, we were a Hebrews of, of Hebrews, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, which which means his family didn't become Hellenized. They remained true to God, to his word, wholly devoted to him. Then we learned sometime in Paul's teens, um, Paul's sent to Jerusalem to study under the great rabbi Gamaliel. And we even read here in verse 14, he says, I was head of my class. I was, I was advancing uh, beyond all of my peers. I, I mean, this guy is on the fast track to success. Um, he also says in verse 14, being extremely zealous. Or another place, like in Acts 22, Paul says, I was a zealous Pharisee. And we've unpacked that a little bit. First of all, a Pharisee is just someone who is utterly committed to purity. Purity at all costs. And we're not talking just sexual purity, but we're talking about purity in every avenue of life. And it wasn't just personal purity. It was national purity. 
they just wanted not only for themselves, but for all God's people to be what God called them to be. God's bride. And as God's bride, we are called to be pure. Now, that's the Pharisee piece. The zealot piece takes the Pharisee piece even further because they will take this issue of purity into their own hands, even with their own people, who they see are polluting the whole thing that God has called us to be and do and believe. And so these first followers of Jesus Christ are seen as that, polluters of the purity. I mean, they're, they're taking going to the temple a little bit lighter and, and, and all the things that go on in the temple a little bit lighter. They're taking specific laws in God's word, his Torah, just a little bit lighter. And so a zealot will take it even further and not just call God's people to purity, they'll do something about it. And so this Jesus movement is seen literally as a virus that could infect the whole. And unless we do something about it, it will contaminate it. And the zealots do stuff about that, and that's what Paul is. Paul is a Pharisee who has become a zealot. And he's so convinced that as he is removing this virus, that he is working for God. But he's blind. And so God makes him blind so he can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is in the face of Christ. And that's his Damascus Road experience. But now what? Now what does Paul do? Now, many people just sort of think Paul becomes this spiritual, instantly changed, superstar Christian. And we like that. We like this idea of just, boom, instantly, poof. And, and I don't want to dismiss that completely. Because in one sense, this is very true. Paul has encountered Christ. Paul has placed his, his life in the arms of Christ. He has surrendered to Christ. And to use the language of another great rabbi speaking to a Pharisee, he's been born again. Born again. The language that Paul is going to use in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 is, is the language of new creation. It's the only way you can speak about these kind of things. That the, the old is gone. The, the, the new has come. And, and, and if you think this Jesus thing or this Jesus movement is about uh, reforming us or just conforming us to a new set of rules and doctrines and way of life, you're wrong. Jesus came to transform us. To, to make us new from the inside out. Um, and, and, and this is a change that's not just external. It's not just cosmetic. It, it, it's the idea that my life can change. My heart can change. That the old can become new. That the bad can become good. That the dirty can become clean. That all that dead stuff that's still in our life can be raised to new life. And Crossroads believes that. Because... That reality flies right in the face of the reality that we're told every day. People can't change. 
My relationships can't change. My attitude can't change. My addiction can't change. You can't change. Nothing can change. And see, when, when, when people come to that conclusion, all people then can do is develop these strategies to cope. So they have to create just the right circumstances where they have to find just the right job, they have to live in just the right place, and they need to find the just right spouse. And, and, and then they're going to quickly find out because all those things will eventually fail. Um, my job isn't right, my life isn't right, my spouse isn't right. The football team that I root for isn't right. And it comes crashing down. But nothing can change. And so not only do I need to try to create the right circumstances, but now I also have to hide. I have to hide the stuff that I can't change. I I, I need to hide that addiction. I need to hide that area of my brokenness. I need to put a good face on everything. And not only do they hide, but then they also develop a lifestyle of medication. And medication can happen uh, from anywhere from using drugs and alcohol to just immersing yourself in Netflix. I need to medicate my fear. I need to medicate my depression. I need to medicate my pain. I need to medicate my disappointments. And here's the awesome truth of the gospel is that Jesus right now can hit the reset button on your life. And he can change your heart. He can change your attitudes. He can change your life. He can change your marriage. He can change your family. He can change the city. And he can change the world. And if we stop believing that, we stop believing in Christ and his gospel. Now, in saying all that, while that can happen in an instant, it's also a lifelong process. It's this lifelong process of, 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 of God working more of Christ in and more of Christ out of our lives. Um, Paul writes to the Christians in Philippi, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because that's what God's salvation is. It's something that we continually work into our lives. It's something that continually gets worked out of our lives. All of life, we like to say around here, is repentance. So we're in this constant process of becoming more like Jesus. And this is why I respect so much the next step in Paul's life. He does not have that road to Damascus experience and just run into doing and working for Christ. He runs into the desert. Look at verse 17. This is the theme verse for today. Paul said, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Arabia in the first century is uh, uh, their term for the desert. And then later, Paul says, after the time, my time in my desert, I, I returned back to Damascus. And so here's where we, we, we have to now ask the question, why the desert? Well, every Jew knows that the desert is where God prepares his people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were all desert people. Moses spent 40 years in the desert because God was preparing him there. Israel spent 40 years in the desert before they entered the promised land because God was preparing them there. 
Jesus went to the desert for 40 days because that's the preparation uh, also for his own ministry. Now, the, the Hebrew word for desert, and we've talked about this before, but it's worth bringing up again. It shares the same root as a, a word, a Hebrew word for the Holy of Holies. You know what the Holy of Holies is. The Holy of Holies is a room in God's house, in God's temple, or God's tabernacle. It's his living room. It's where God, his raw presence, literally lives. Now, before there was a temple, before there was a tabernacle, God's Holy of Holies was the desert. That's why God, in effect, says in his word, he says, Egypt is Pharaoh's land. Promised land is is the land I'm giving to you. But he says about the desert, he says, the desert is my land. In fact, in the ancient world, the, the, the way that they understood the gods is that each god was over a particular region. They, they, they were regional deities. And so the, the regional deity that was associated with Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible, the desert. So I got, God says to Pharaoh, let my people go so they can worship me in the desert. And that is precisely why Paul is going into the desert. He, he's going into the desert first and foremost to meet with God, to be with God, to be filled with God. In fact, I even find this interesting because I know the land of Israel so well because I've studied it and I've led so many trips there. Is that, and I think about this every time I, I, I go to Israel, is that even when God's people leave the desert and they go into the promised land, the promised land still consists of two parts. It has a front yard and it has a backyard. And its front yard, where, where the world's major highway of its day passes, um, that's the place where Israel is called to be what they're called to be a light to the nations. Where they're called to be the city set on the, on the hill. That's their front yard. But their backyard is desert. Because it's like God is saying, even though I'm putting you in this land where you're going to be on mission for me, that's not going to have desert removed from that mission. In fact, the rabbis, uh, the way they, they, they talk about this, they say to engage the world with God which, which is, is our calling, we need to spend time also not just in our front yard where we're living for God, but we need to spend as much time also in our backyard. We're getting filled with God. How can you give God away? You're not being filled with him. Like, what do you have to give? So I, I want us to see the, this picture and, and, and why a guy like Paul isn't going to just run Uh, head straight right into his mission, but why he's going to run into the desert. And if you want to know why why his life is going to ooze this spiritual authority, like we saw the first week where these soldiers, he can just instantly uh, have them in the palm of his hand, and then this whole mob that wants to kill him, he can instantly have them in the palm of his hands. He has authority. It's because he spends time in the desert. Do you have desert in your life? Do you have time and place where you go and you just meet with God? Where you worship Him? 
We get filled with him. We hear him. We seek him. I mean, desert is something we choose. We choose to spend time with God. And we are without excuse to say we don't have time. (laughs) Because every time you say yes to one thing, you're also saying no to something else. But here's something else. Sometimes God also chooses desert for us because desert isn't just that warm and fuzzy place. Desert is a hard place. Desert is where we're stripped of, of, of all of our creaturely comforts, where, where, where we're stripped of all the things that we put our hope in, uh, all the things that we take refuge in so that we can take refuge in one place, and that's God. And God sometimes just puts us in desert places, in desert seasons. God loves the desert. And God meets his people in profound ways in the desert. Crossroads, we have to be a church as we live on mission that also is going into the desert regularly. Now, desert, the word midbar in Hebrew, literally means place of the word. And, and, and this is a second reason why I think Paul goes into the desert because this is where God is going to give Paul revelation of who he is. In fact, look at verses 11 and 12 of our text. And I want you to just think about this. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that I preached to you is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any person, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. <laughs> When did he get this revelation? Where do you go to get God's word? You go to the desert. You go to Midbar, place of the word. Now now, now think about this as well. Paul knows God's word by heart. But now he's encountered Messiah, the risen Messiah, and he needs to relearn the whole text. I loved what Rabbi Jason said weeks ago because he had the same experience as a Jew learning the text and knowing the text. But then when his life came to Christ, he needed that Emmaus Road experience where, where the text now is opened up from, from the prophets and from Moses from the beginning to the end uh, where, where, where Christ he could see in all of it. Man, I would love to have been with Paul when this happened. I would have loved to have just seen him paging through the pages of the Old Testament and seeing Christ everywhere. I mean, Jude 1 verse 5, and by the way, most of your translations translate this out. It says, and the Lord led them out of Egypt. In the Greek, it's Jesus. It's Jesus led God's people out of Egypt. He is just covered by smoke by day and fire by night. Now here's even what what would have just... I mean, I don't know how excited some of you get over certain things in life, but the excitement that Paul now has... If Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and it's not an if to Paul, but what this means now to him is that 
this thing that the, the, the prophet spoke about has now been launched. We're now living in the messianic age. And to us, it's like, well, what does that mean? Well, part of it's because we just don't know what the prophet spoke about in Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. Places where the prophet said, when the Messiah comes, I'm going to pour new water on you and it's going to wash you. And I'm literally going to pour my Ruach HaChodesh, my Holy Spirit in you. And, and, and he's going to fill you. And, and, and those bones, those valley of bones are going to come to life again. I'm going to raise you up. Or Isaiah 11. Or Isaiah 61. All these realities of the messianic age. It has now been inaugurated because Messiah has come. The kingdom of heaven is here. The lame are going to walk. The blind are going to see. The dead are going to be raised to new life. Or let me just put this in terms of Narnia, because I think Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia capture this really well. I mean, if you know the story, in Narnia it's always winter with no Christmas. (laughs) That's pretty depressing reality. (laughs) Until the lion shows up. Because one day, I think it's Lucy says, everything's starting to melt. The The snow's starting to melt. The icicles are starting to fall from the tree. Because the thaw has begun. Resurrection is in the air. Spring is coming. And summer is around the corner. And even Father Christmas shows up. Because this is what Paul is thinking. If, 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 if you want to know why this guy is going to go to almost every city in the Roman Empire. He's going to go to Rome itself. He's even going to go to Spain. Spain is the utter ends of the earth. It's because Messiah has come and he now is is launching the Messiah age. You guys, we're living in it. We're living in the age of Messiah. And that's why we can talk about born again. And we can talk about New creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now listen, this is how this should read. The old, not just your old, but the old age is done, gone. And the new messianic age has come. We're living in it. I'll tell you what, the most exciting thing happening right now in Grand Rapids, Michigan is not the new iPhone 10. It's certainly not Black Friday. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's the most exciting thing happening in the United States. It's the most exciting thing that's happening all over the world right now. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's breaking in. It's breaking out. And this is what is, 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 is going to drive Paul. Now, in light of all this, there's, there's a third reason why Paul goes to the desert. Not only is Paul's entire paradigm now shattered, but so is this, his call. His call. You guys, everything that Paul was doing in his form, former life, in his mind, he would have said, this is what, what I'm called to. 
But that's all shattered now. And see, this is the one thing that, that, that I've noticed about the, the, the Jewish people is they have this deep sense of call. They have this, this deep understanding that God picked us, that he selected us, that he chose us, and, and, and that he's called us. And it's not just that he called us to himself to have special relationship with him, but it's even more than that. He's, he's called us for this specific, unique thing that we are to be in the world for God. That runs deep. In a Jewish person. And see, not only do they, they sense this call collectively, but they also understand that God has called each of us to something very specific and that we must know what that calling is so we can live that calling out so that God's collective calling through us can be fulfilled. That's why a person's name to them is so much. That, that name helps flush out what that calling is. Sometimes even biblical characters um, w- w- would play a part in this, that, that people would model their life after. And, and literally, they would walk that path of that biblical character to which they think that is what I'm called to be and do. That's my unique role in this collective call that God has placed on our people. When Paul says in verse 14, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father... Uh, that is said in the Bible about Phineas. And so, in some ways, Phineas would have given Paul some of his marching orders. But there's only one biblical character who actually says this. And this biblical character says, I have been zealous for the Lord. And that biblical character is Elijah. And if you know the story of Mount Carmel, that showdown between Baal and the Lord, the, the, this contest of, of who could bring fire down from heaven, would it be Baal or would it be the Lord? Not only does the Lord bring the fire, but after this, what does Elijah do? Takes up the sword and kills 450 of the prophets of Baal right there. When that day is over, he runs south, he makes it to the desert, He journeys one day in the desert, and then he just lays down in this crumpled mess. And he tells God, I want to die. I'm done. I'm quitting. The beautiful thing is that Jesus shows up there, gives him a meal, probably the meal of all meals. Says, you're tired. Your journey is long, but keep going. That meal sustains Elijah for the next 40 days as he runs in the desert all the way to Mount Sinai. He gets to Mount Sinai and God says, what are you doing here? How about that? 40 days in the desert, you get there to the mountain of the Lord and God says, what are you doing here? God knows what he's doing. God knows that Elijah has run all the way in the, into the desert to meet with God to hand in his letter of resignation. I'm done. I'm done being your prophet. God says basically, hey, Elijah, let me hide you in a, face of, in a cleft of a rock just like I did to Moses. And I will let my presence pass by you. And all of a sudden, boom, there's a tornado. And then there's this earthquake that just shakes. 
And then the, the lightning and the thunder just crashed down on that mountain. But Elijah just knows, God, you're not in any of those things. And then Elijah confronts the raw, awesome presence of God through his whisper. His whisper. Elijah, who did you think I was? Why did you kill those 450 prophets? But here's the thing that God does. God, rather than taking his resignation, or actually God says, I'll take that. Yep. (laughs) Your letter of resignation, I take that. Because I'm going to give you a new call, Elijah. I want you to go the desert to Damascus and I want you to make a disciple and I want you to raise up a disciple of prophets the whole spectacular Mount Carmel stage audience in front of all the people that's done you're leaving that you resigned I'm now giving you the call go make a disciple And you say, what does this have to do with Paul? Well, Paul, like his hero Elijah, with all this misplaced zeal, leading him to violence. In Acts 22, he says, I persecuted the church with great violence and I tried to destroy it. And we know that Paul has come to see the church in the same light that Elijah saw the prophets of Baal. All these prophets, these false prophets must be destroyed. But then he has this encounter with Christ. His whole paradigm is shattered. And so Paul, like Elijah, goes off to Sinai. Like, where's that in the text? I can accept the desert, but how do you know he goes actually to Mount Sinai? Well, I can be that conclusive. One, because I know that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. But more importantly, the only other time Arabia is used in the New Testament is later in this letter in Galatians 4 verse 25 where Paul says, for, the, for Sinai is a mountain in Arabia. And so why is, is Paul going to Arabia where he's just following the shoes of his hero Elijah? He's going to resign of his old call. And I'm sure he's hoping, God, just like Elijah, would you give me a new call? And so he walks in his hero's shoes Because this is where Elijah goes to Sinai. And then after Sinai, he goes the same place Elijah goes back to Damascus. Why Damascus? Because this is the path Elijah took. Now what's in it for us? God never converts somebody without also calling them. And see, I know this is going to happen, that as, as we study Paul's life, you're going to start to wonder, like, how can a, a person give up so much? How can a person suffer so much, endure so much, do so much for the cause of Christ? And what I don't want you to conclude, that Paul is just this special class of Christian. He isn't. He's a person just like us. But this is a guy who knows the call of God on his life. 
Have you been called? I hope we've all had a Damascus Road experience of some sorts, like Paul did, where Christ comes into our life and he converts us and he changes us. And like the songs we sang, we surrender to him, we place our life in his arms. But Paul also gets a new vocation. He has a Mount Sinai experience. And I'll tell you, the, the, the call that God will put on, on Paul's life is massive. I mean, he talks about it in our text. In verse 15 and 16, he says, but when, my, my, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And he's quoting a text. He's quoting or referring to Isaiah 49. And I'm convinced with all my my heart that Isaiah 49 is the call, the specific call that Paul received while he was in the desert from God himself. And this is what Isaiah 49, and I'll just read verses 5 to 6. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb. (laughs) See, he's using that, in my mother's womb. He formed me in his womb to be his slave. How often does Paul talk about his relationship to God as a slave? I'm a slave of Christ. And God did this to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has been my strength. And he says, is it too small a thing for you to be my slave, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel that I have kept, and I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That's a massive call. And Paul is probably just like so privileged in that call. Have you been called? To what? To just go to school? Make money? Have a great life? Oh, and sprinkle a little Jesus on top of it? Is that what you've been called to? Guys, we're living in some exciting times. Come on, who wants to dance right now? Because we're living in such exciting times. You know why? We are now at the end of an experiment that our culture has tried. We've tried to live without God. And guess what? It is found to be wanting and bankrupt. That's the time we're living in. Let me read this from... uh, David Samuels, who writes for the New York Times and other periodicals, this is an essay that's actually 10 years old. He calls it, In the Age of Radical Selfishness. He's writing this after the breakup of his girlfriend. So he's a bit reflective. 
He says, by the time my girlfriend and I broke up, I concluded that the problem wasn't just sex or high-pressure careers or guilt or the takeout food cartons in the fridge or the boredom inherent in serial monogamy. Serial monogamy is this practice of engaging in a series of monogamous sexual relationships, one after the other. He said, but it was our inability to imagine a future together, and this was not ours alone. It was a symptom of a larger fracture or collapse involving however many hundreds of thousands of people in their 20s and early 30s who seemed to lack any sense of necessary connection to anything larger than their own narrowly personal aims and preoccupations. Thus the title, In the Age of Radical Selfishness. He said, in my life, all of these social movements, civil rights, women's lib, etc., basic laws of social gravity, had lost all their pull. We were free to be white, we were free to be black. We were free to be gay or straight, to grow our hair long, shave our heads, meditate for days on end, have children or not have children, drink bottled water, work out at the gym, watch television until 3 a.m. in the morning, and exist outside those traditional roles and the close, gossipy communities that had burdened and constrained our parents growing up in Brooklyn and the Bronx. You're probably like, okay, why, why, is you, why are you talking about this guy who broke up with his girlfriend? Because it's, it's causing him to ask deep questions about life. Listen to what he says next. He says, this freedom from the gravity of the age-old constraints was accompanied by a weightless feeling that attached itself to even the most fundamental human decisions. Like, why bother? Why get married? What are families for? Why give yourself to anything or anyone? What's the point? And he says what was new about these questions was not only they didn't have answers, but that the answers they did have were so confusing and relative that they never really felt like answers at all. That's the age we live. We live... In, in, in a time, as he just described, where, where we're free to do whatever we want, we can be whatever we want, all the age-old constraints that our parents knew, they are now gone. And if you think that's a good thing, he says it well. He says, all the freedom was accompanied by this weightless feeling that nothing mattered. Both big things and small things. Everything from marriage and having children to how I cut my hair. It doesn't matter. It's meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's weightless. It just blows away. And why has our world come to, to, to this? Because of the title of, uh, of his article. It's an age of radical selfishness. And what that has produced is, this, is this, just this, this meaningless existence. And I'm not ripping on, 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 on any generation, because I can include myself in, in this generation, and so can some of the older uh, as well, because we are all a generation that has never been fed better, we've never been clothed better, we've never been so entertained, ha- had so much to indulge our life into, and yet the thing I hear so often is, I'm bored. <laughs> I'm bored. And you know what you say every time you say, I'm bored? You're saying, life is meaningless. It's meaningless. And part of the reason you're saying that is because we haven't called you to anything greater than your own self. 
But when you hear the call of Jesus break into your heart and your life, it'll give you reason to wake up in the morning. Because it's not about you anymore. But it's about this awesome thing that God is doing in the world. That, he's, that even starts with you. That we can only use terms like born again and new creation to describe it. Have you been called? What's he called you to? That's my job. That's our job. I'm going to just say this right now. That's what the staff is talking about more than anything these days. We are dreaming of ways to get you to know what it is that God has called you to and to put you together with people of like calls and unleash you into our city and into the world for the cause of Christ. We have to do it. But until that time, here's my challenge. Get in the desert. And if you're married, go there with your spouse. And if you have a family, go there with your family. And and if you have a group of friends, go there with, 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 with your group of friends. And start asking God, what are you calling me to? What do you, what do you, what, what, role do you want me to play in your kingdom? I believe with all my heart he'll he'll whisper to you. And he'll raise you up. And he'll send you out. I, Paul, a slave of Christ and an apostle, a sent one for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.